Our family enjoys camping, and one of my favorite parts about camping is sitting out at night gazing up at the stars. In the city, there's too much light. The stars aren't quite as visible. But in the badlands or in the boundary waters, stars twinkle. In fact, the darker it is, the brighter they shine. I was feeling a little down this week, maybe because I was listening to news coverage, and I was feeling like I could use a little light right now. Turns out this was not just in my head. How many of you knew last night marked the winter solstice in, the North, in North America? Any little astronomers amongst us? Good. Winter solstice, for those not up on your astronomy, is when the North Pole is tilted furthest from the sun. As such, it's the date of the year that gets the fewest hours of daylight. So it's the darkest day of the year or the longest night of the year. So if you were feeling like things were a bit dark lately, you're not crazy. I have good news for you and for me today. Into our dark world, a light has come. We're concluding a series today called The Cast of Christmas, where for a few weeks we've been looking at various characters in this amazing story of Jesus' birth. This week, we're looking at the story through the eyes of the Magi, the wise men who eagerly seek out Jesus after he is born, prompted by the appearance of a star shining brightly in the sky. We're going to walk through this passage today verse by verse. I'm going to make some comments as we go, and then we'll look at what this story might mean for us, and in particular, how we can respond to the Christ child. Follow along with me in the Bible, if you will. It's Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. It's page 1469 in the Pew Bible, or the words will also be on the screen. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, so right away we're told the focus of this story is not how Mary becomes pregnant, or how Jesus is born. We've already looked at those perspectives in previous weeks with Mary, Joseph, and the shepherds. The focus today is on how people responded to Jesus' birth. Magi from the east come to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, there's been a lot of misconception about who these magi are. Most of us get our conception of who they are from the old song, We Three Kings of Orient Are. And I'm sorry to tell you that that song is just not very historically accurate. For starters, there probably were not three of them. We only assume that from the number of gifts they bring. But as we'll see in a moment, the gifts are probably given on behalf of their entire entourage. Upon entering the capital city, all of Jerusalem is disturbed by their presence. It seems unlikely that three guys on camels could cause such a big stir in a big city. In addition, they most certainly are not kings. Yes, they bring gifts fit for king, and clearly they are educated, wealthy men based on the treasures they bring, but they are not royalty. In fact, the word used to describe them, magi, in English means wise men. 
This was a term used to describe a group of people in the East who tracked the movements of the stars and then interpreted them. So think modern-day horoscopes or zodiac signs. Now, astrology has been largely debunked today. Instead, we encourage the exploration of astronomy, where mathematics, physics, and chemistry uh, are used together to study the stars, planets, and space. But the ancient world didn't have the sophisticated telescopes or imagery or software we have. They did, however, believe that heaven and earth were interconnected such that when something important was happening on earth, you would see it in the heavens. Similarly, a remarkable event in the stars and planets indic indic indicates something remarkable is happening on earth. The very best scholars in this field of astrology were pagans who lived in the east in what was probably Persia, or modern-day Iraq, and they're non-Jewish. In fact, the Old Testament had forbidden God's people from looking to the stars for meaning, which makes it all the more astounding that God communicates to them in this way. What exactly did they see in the sky? Experts have tried to answer this question, and we really don't know. Halley's Comet did appear in 12 or 11 BC, but that's a bit early for this time period. More likely, the planets of Jupiter and Saturn were conjoined. This would not be the first time that happened in that century. Since Jupiter was conceived as a kingly planet and Saturn often represented Jewish people, it's possible the wise men saw this and concluded a new king of the Jews had come, but we simply don't know. Now, many people dismiss this story as simply legendary since we can't know exactly what it is that they saw. But I don't think it's too far-fetched to believe that creation itself must respond to the Savior's birth. Our writer Matthew takes great care to mention that at the end of Jesus' life, just after he has died on the cross, there is a cosmic reaction to his death. Matthew 27, 45, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. Matthew 27, 51, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook violently, and the rocks split. Does it really seem so far-fetched to believe that when the creator becomes the creation, that very creation must respond in some way? I think of Jesus riding on the donkey that first Palm Sunday, two loud praises of his disciples. When he's told to quiet them, he replies, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the very stones will cry out. This is intended to be a covert operation, but creation simply can't keep quiet. And so a star shines in the east. And whatever it is, it's compelling enough to capture the attention of and devotion of the wise men. They decide to search for this king so that they can worship him. And here our great truth is revealed. This baby's birth is for all people. What God initially revealed to a poor Jewish couple and to, then to the local townies watching over their sheep, he now reveals to wealthy, educated, non-Jewish people hundreds of miles away. 
This news is intended to be for both local and global, rich and poor, Jewish and Gentile. And though God's people weren't to put their trust in the stars, God himself meets these seekers where they are, revealing himself in a way they can recognize. And so seeing a star in the east, they set off for Jerusalem because where else would you expect royalty to be? They don't expect the obscurity surrounding this king. They waltz right up to King Herod, the current king of the Jews, and say, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We've seen his star and we've come to worship him. Talk about being culturally unaware. These wise guys are clueless. They have no idea who they're dealing with. Verse 3, when Herod heard this, he was greatly disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Now, disturbed is a euphemism. King Herod was known as Herod the Great. He was put in power by the Romans as a puppet king over Judea. He was a great builder. He built the aqueducts and rebuilt the temple and other massive building projects you can still visit today. He reigned from 37 BC until his death in 4 BC, which is the key factor for us in determining the date of Jesus' birth. But he was ruthless, particularly with those he deemed as a threat to his power. There was a saying at the time, better to be one of Herod's pigs than one of Herod's sons, because he would do anything to keep power. Here's just a few examples. One of his rivals was found dead from an unusual drowning incident. He strangled his favorite wife in anger. He had three of his own sons executed. He murdered his mother-in-law and brother-in-law. He even arranged for the death of several noblemen upon his own death to ensure that somebody would be mourning that day. Psycho. Now, you pair that personality with the fact that in the ancient world, it was believed the movements of the stars predicted the rise and fall of leaders, and we got a problem here. Herod, we've seen this rising star, and we've come to worship him. Herod fears this may be the beginning of the end for him. Threatened by the rise of another king, he plots what to do. In verse 4, our puppet king of the Jews has to shore up on his messianic prophecies. When he'd called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, where was Messiah to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, citing a prophecy from Micah 5.2 that any devout Jewish person would know. He gathers a little more intel. Verse 7, Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. What are we talking here? Is this like 15 years ago or is this just recent? Satisfied that this is still a manageable threat, it's a baby for Pete's sake, he decides it's best to keep it under wrap, to keep an eye on things. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. He can't even bring himself to say king. As soon as you find him, report to me so I too may go and worship him. There's only one main road connecting the six miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. These wise men seem naive enough to Herod. 
Verse 12 tells us, in fact, they need divine intervention from God through a dream to warn them to take a different route home rather than go back through Jerusalem as Herod requested. So Herod lies right through his teeth. Find him. Report him back to me so I can go and worship him. If you really want to worship the king, why wouldn't you just join the entourage, Herod? You sure you don't want to come with? When I think about King Herod, I can't help but think of the characters in The Mandalorian who are constantly seeking the powerful Yoda-like boy child Mando protects. Shout out to Star Wars there. Okay. Verse 9. After they have heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. The star that lit up was back in the that lit up back in the east prompted their long trek to Jerusalem now reappears after they have set off towards Bethlehem, showing them where to find the baby. Of course they're overjoyed to see this star again. They're finally getting close. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. Now it's not clear how much time has passed, but some time. Jesus is not a newborn anymore. He's no longer in an inn, but in a house. Remember, Joseph's from Bethlehem, so it's likely he has extended family in town. Who wants to make the trek from Bethlehem back to hometown Nazareth, Galilee, with a newborn? Any of you who have done road trips with young children can appreciate this. Can you imagine stopping to feed the baby every two hours or dealing with that wobbly neck on the bumpy first century roads? Not to mention the rumors surrounding Mary's pregnancy. It makes sense why he'd stay put for a little while. And one day, months later, or up to two years later, as we'll see, they spot an entourage coming towards them. And wealthy, educated, non-Jewish men joyously bowed down and worshipped Jesus. Not just kneeling before. The word used means to fall flat on your face, prostrate before in Judaism, this word was only used to describe the worship of God. One early church father wrote explaining this odd scene of grown, wealthy men prostrate before a chubby little boy. A boy he is, but it is God who is adored. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route, a route which I will say was much more out of the way, treacherous, and time-consuming. On the one hand, the gifts, of the, magi, the gifts the Magi bring may simply be very practical provision by God for his own son. Once Herod learns he's been outsmarted by the wise men who return home a different way, he orders the execution of all the boys in Bethlehem, two years old and younger, in accordance with what he, when he learned from them about when the star appeared, Matthew 2, 16. But God, protecting his son, tells Joseph in a dream to seek refuge in Egypt, of all places, which he does. 
If you've ever been traveling and your trip gets extended unexpectedly, you'll appreciate this. With no ATMs, no Venmo, and not a lot of financial reserves to begin with, gold would have been helpful along their unanticipated journey. Frankincense and myrrh, both lightweight for travel, would have also fetched a nice price in Egypt. The Magi's gifts are God's provision for his son's survival. But the gifts aren't just practical. They're fit for a king. They're the kinds of things you'd expect royalty to receive. And while we don't know the exact meaning of each one, they do seem to represent something about this baby king. Gold, an appropriate gift for royalty. Frankincense, the incense used in the worship of God. And myrrh, both a first century painkiller and the embalming spice most appropriate for the one who comes to suffer with and die for his people. The spice appears not just at Jesus' birth, but at his death too when it is offered to him on the cross and later as an embalming agent by those who bury him. The Magi give Jesus their time, their effort, their treasures, their affections, as well as their worship. Now this may seem pretty straightforward, but I think Matthew has two other subversive goals here. I think what Matthew wants us to see is not three kings, but two. And to see the incredible contrast between them. Herod's called king of the Jews in verse 1. Jesus is hung on a cross with a sign, king of the Jews, overhead. One rules from positional power given by people from a throne in a capital city. The other rules with true power in an obscure home given by God. Jesus Christ is not the kind of king we are used to. But there's another contrast I think Matthew intends us to see, one which certainly would have challenged first century assumptions about who can receive this good news and which may challenge ours as well. It's the contrast between the Magi and the scribes. See, what is most shocking in this story is not the appearance of a star to non-Jewish people leading away to the Savior, but rather the total lack of action on the part of the scribes or Jewish religious leaders to respond to this news at all. When confronted with the evidence that the Messiah has indeed come, they don't even bother to go. Bethlehem is a mere six miles south of Jerusalem. This is just a two to three hour walk, even by first century road standards. Why don't they go? We aren't told. It could be fear. If Herod was my ruler, I'm not sure I'd want to go either. It could be disbelief. The Jewish scriptures warned against looking to the stars for meaning, so why should they listen to these wise guys from the East? It could be they were just indifferent. They were busy, preoccupied. We aren't told, but in this case, their lack of response is truly noteworthy. So what does all this mean for us? Besides the boy king, there are three other main characters in this story. 
And each one has a different response to him. And we are faced with the question, which response to Jesus do we embody? The first response we see in King Herod, anger. Herod's afraid. When he hears about the star and the baby, he perceives Jesus as a threat to his reign. He's king and he doesn't want to be dethroned. Sadly, there have been and continue to be many people like Herod, including ourselves at times. We may not react as violently or with such extreme measures as he, but we may, like Herod, resent and resist his coming. We may do everything we can to keep him from ruling our kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is a threat to any great or small who insist on having it their way. Are we willing to come down off our own thrones and let him reign instead? The second response is that of the scribes, apathy. Of all people, the scribes should have reacted to this news with great enthusiasm, but they don't. I don't want to be too hard on them. I see their reaction in myself at times. Sometimes we're so familiar with the story. We've heard it year after year. It no longer moves us. We've grown cold or we're too busy. We have other priorities to attend to. But if Jesus really is the one true king, doesn't he deserve more than indifference? Doesn't he deserve a wholehearted response? The third response is that of the magi, adoration. They seek the king with all they have. They act on the news they have heard. In fact, they go out of their way to act on it. Who knows how long it took them to travel or how much money it cost. And when they find him, they respond with joy, with worship, and with giving him gifts. Is that our reaction to the baby this Christmas? What time and effort are we putting into finding him? Are we willing to rearrange our lives around this news? Are we waiting until it's more convenient? Are we willing to open our treasures to him? When is the last time you or I literally or metaphorically lay prostrate before the child in worship? The Magi bow down. And why not? They've just made a long trek to meet this baby, scanning the skies, consulting ancient texts, plodding through deserts, climbing mountains. But their journey pales in comparison with the one before whom they have bowed who left heaven to come to earth, who stripped himself of all the privileges of being God and became nothing. Philippians 2 says, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing, being made in human likeness. It is because of his willingness to make this journey to become one of us, to enter our mess, that he is worthy. He's worthy because once he, Jesus does this, once he takes on human flesh, 
the rest of the story is set in place. He was born to die. His humility extends not just to his taking the form of a baby, but also to giving up his very life for us. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. But death could not keep him down. The God-man in his humanity dies, but in his deity on the third day gets up from the tomb and conquers sin and death once and for all. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow or fall prostrate before him in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Apostle Paul put it like this in 2 Corinthians 1.20. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Oh, little town of Bethlehem, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in this child tonight. Just as last night was the winter solstice, the longest, darkest night of the year, we too live in darkness. And you and I feel that darkness, do we not? Our country this week, regardless of what your beliefs are politically or your views on impeachment, I think we can all agree, our country is so divided right now, so polarized. Neither side is listening to the other or open to reason. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, bid thou our sad division cease and be for us the prince of peace. But we don't have to look at our country or the chaos of the world to see the darkness. We see it in our extended families, in our neighbors and friends, even in our own homes and personal lives. Unmet longings, strained or fractured relationships, grieving the loss of loved ones whose silence is absolutely deafening this time of year. When will the crooked way be made straight? That bright star may have been God mercifully communicating to those magi in a way they could understand it, drawing them to himself. But it also has another meaning, a metaphorical meaning for us. Into this dark world, this winter solstice, a bright light has dawned. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For unto us, a child is born. In the words of Zechariah, whose son John the Baptist was born just months before Jesus, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the path of peace. And in the words of John, the gospel writer's prologue, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Do not be afraid. Our king has come, and he will come again to set the world right. So with the Magi, we can say confidently, even defiantly, 
in the midst of our darkness, we have seen his star rise and we have come to worship him. Oh, come let us adore him with our lips and with our lives, with our words and with our deeds. Let us worship the one true king. Let's pray. God, you know how dark it is. You know that for some of us, it feels like the dawn will not come. It is only dark. Oh, thank you that you entered our darkness. You are one familiar with pain and suffering, and you have come so that you can abolish it. Help us to see your bright light now. Gift given partly for provision for your son as a refugee. Gift given partly to those wise men to come and find you and find life in you. Gift given to us today to be reminded that your light has come and it cannot be snuffed out. Oh, help us, God, to be people of light, to reflect your life and light in all that we do that others may be drawn to see. Give us hope and joy, we pray, in this season. And help us to come off our own little thrones and to enthrone you, Jesus, in the kingdom of our lives. This we pray in his name and for the greater fame of his name. Amen.